0: This episode of Biscuits and Jam is presented by Boar's Head. When you think about our food, soul food, that I'm not sure if even now it's even capitalized as a proper noun, but when people think of other cuisines and they're from a particular country, they're capitalized because they are from a particular country. Well, we don't have that country. And so I'm always saying this should be capitalized because that is our food.
1: Welcome to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, editor-in-chief of Southern Living Magazine. This week's guest says that after doing everything from accounting to fashion modeling, she stumbled upon food as a career. But in the process, she's influenced cooks everywhere by living in the moment and leaning into the unpredictable.
0: Failure is part of success. I want to inspire people to just try something. It doesn't matter if you fall on your face. And I've done that too. I've hosted... The james beard awards and i literally fell like superman
1: diving onto the floor born and raised in nashville carla hall began a modest lunch delivery service after moving to washington dc but over the years her dynamic personality and her creativity in the kitchen have turned her into something of a culinary rock star from competing on top chef to hosting the chew Worst Cooks in America, and now her own podcast called Say Yes with Carla Hall, she is an inspiration far beyond the world of cuisine. On this week's program, Carla discusses her new book, what her grandmother would cook every Sunday after church, and the differences between Southern food and soul food. All that and more this week on Biscuits and Jam. Well, Carla Hall, welcome to Biscuits and
0: Jam. Thank you. It's all in the name. It's all in the love of my stuff. Yes. So thank you for having me.
1: You know, we've talked to a lot of people on this podcast who moved to Nashville to make it big as country artists, but I mean, you're actually from Nashville. I am. Tell me a little bit about the house and the neighborhood that you grew up in. So I grew up in
0: North Nashville, and we were there until I was, I think, 11. But that neighborhood was a predominantly black neighborhood, small, middle-class neighborhood, very close. All the parents knew each other. And I was just there a few weeks ago. And I I, I went around to the old neighborhood, seeing my neighbors. And it, we were really, really close. And I went to St. Vincent de Paul from kindergarten until eighth grade. And just a really close-knit community. Do you still have family there? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My mother's still there. My mother lives in Bellevue. And I go home about twice a year. And my mom is always up in the D.C. area. I'm like, do you have a house here? She's there so frequently. But yeah, I still make it back to Nashville.
1: So did you grow up in a musical family or a family that loved
0: music? Yes. So my mother would sit on Sundays and she would just have albums all around her. That would be her me time. Listening to music. My mother loves going to concerts, any outdoor concert. There's not a concert that she won't go to. My dad was very much into blues and jazz. And my grandmother would would be walking around singing Nat King Cole. And we even have some of her old albums.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Well, you, you know, you grew up in the country music capital of the world. Any country fans in your family? Yeah, there are
0: country fans, but I wouldn't say that my mother's a country fan. I wanted to work at the Country Music Hall of Fame, and I always liked country music just because I think the storytelling. Also, for me, I'm like, name that tune in a song, you know, not one note, not even 20 notes, but like a, I need a whole song to name that tune. But for me, it was all about storytelling. So that's why it was easier for me to remember some of the country songs. And I was a fan of Hee Haw back in the day. Oh, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I was that kid. Oh, yeah. Very fond memories of Hee Haw. It was always on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mini Pearl. (laughs) Yeah. So, Carla, you know, Nashville, I mean, is this culinary hotspot now, but that was not always the case. I mean, what were some of the restaurants that you went to when you were growing up?
0: So when I was growing up, we went to Mary's Pit Barbecue down on Jefferson. The school that I talked about I went to, St. Vincent, was very close to Meharry. And there was a place, I remember they had these fried chicken legs. Well, we, we like dark meat, so I'm, I'm sure they had white meat. But we, <laughs> as a kid, I was good at the chicken leg. And they had also these fried pineapples we we frequented that place on our way to the hospital where my grandmother would sort of be watching us after school ed's fish i remember going to ed's fish and pizza we also went to sweats i don't, I don't remember when sweats came about it had to have been i had to have been in high school or something but
1: oh, you wrote about sweats the, in your cookbook mhm
0: Mm-hmm. So sweats was one of the places. Actually, when I go home, I, I I still go there because it's kind of a tradition. And we went to Morrison's Cafe. My father worked at Bellmead Cafeteria, so we would go there. And what was so fancy, you know, even though it was a cafeteria, you would go down the line and pick out your dishes when you got to the end and we never had to pay. I mean, even though I was young, I was still very conscious of this, that it was being taken care of because we were our dad's kids. And then the waiters would take our trays into the table and it just felt so fancy, you know? So those are the places that we went, but I don't remember us actually eating out a lot. My mother cooked I mean, back in the day, I remember the fancy, fancy place was the Sailmaker, which was behind where the Meat Theater
1: was. It it was over there. So
0: yeah, those were some of the places that we visited back
1: in the day. So when did uh, hot chicken first come into your life?
0: Well, you know, I asked my mom about hot chicken. She was saying that she had been eating hot chicken when Princess was over on Charlotte. So she and my dad were eating it long before we were. I didn't really get into hot chicken until like 2010 or so. After I left for college, you know, I left in 82 and I never really lived in Nashville after 82. So it was only when I came back and I would go out with friends and they were like, Hey, let's go over to Prince's. I'm like, Oh, okay. And I'm also a wuss. I I can't do real spicy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Did I just out myself? Oh, really? Is yeah. that true? It is true. It, it is very true. I don't do spicy well. My nose runs. My eyes run. It makes me sneeze. Pepper makes me sneeze, although I like spice, but I have to have something to calm me down.
1: Yeah, that hot chicken. If you get the hot, watch out. You might be hurting for a few days. <laughs>
0: oh, yeah. It's going to hurt you twice, going in and coming out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, Carla, your last cookbook was called Carla Hall's Soul Food. It's a wonderful cookbook. Thank you. And you talk about how your granny would host a Sunday supper every week after church. hmm Can you describe what those days were like? I mean, what was on the menu? Where did it happen? Who was there?
0: So, my grandmother lived in Lebanon, Tennessee, which is about 30 miles outside of Nashville. And... We would go to Granny's right after church and and so imagine, you know, we were going to church at eleven, we'd get up by one, and then we're heading to Granny's house and so, you know, I was starving. By one o'clock, you know, you were starving. You you left home at ten and you get to church and sometimes you'd go to Sunday school. So that thirty minutes, thirty, forty minutes always felt like five days for me. I, I I tell you, I are we there yet? And I couldn't wait until we saw the Watertown sign because that was Granny's exit. I'm like, oh my gosh, thank the baby Jesus. So we would get there and Granny would meet us at the door and I'm like, is the cornbread ready yet? She's like, no, I was waiting for y'all to get here. And Every single Sunday, every Sunday, I would say to my mom, can we call Granny? Can we just pull off and tell Granny that we are 10 minutes away and that she can start the cornbread so that when we get there, we could actually eat? Because it would be 20 minutes once we got there for Granny to do the cornbread. But she would have the cast iron skillet in the oven, heating up, and then she'd put the oil in and she would have her wet ingredients, she'd have her dry ingredients, And she would mix them. And it was at that moment where she would take out that cast iron skillet and the oil would be in there heating up like that last five minutes and the batter would just curl over the sides. And, you know, that was going to be the crunchy bits. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, we're going to be eating in 20 minutes. (laughs) So granny would always have some kind of pickles. So... She would do sliced tomatoes and she called tomatoes homegrown tomatoes because people would bring her their homegrown tomatoes. I thought that's what they were called. So if I went to the store for tomatoes, I'm looking for homegrown tomatoes in the grocery store because that's all she had and granny always peeled them. And it wasn't until I went to culinary school that I'm like, oh, granny actually peeled her tomatoes like they're doing at culinary school. And then we would have macaroni and cheese creamed corn, smothered pork chops or chicken, like baked chicken. And and just to give you an idea, like any kind of meat that granny would have, she started making in the morning. So after she had her rolled oats, she was making the, the protein, like a good amount of the dinner early. So like those smothered pork chops would be simmering on the stove and they were so fork tender and so, oh my gosh, so delicious and and just rich. And then we would have potatoes. She would always make some kind of a pie or a pound cake, which I loved. We would only have rolls when it was a special occasion. Mm. Oh, like, oh my God, I have to say, and a country ham, because when my, my, <laughs> grandmother, my grandmother had a lot of property, so sometimes people would barter for their rent, and we would get, like, a beautiful, delicious,
1: big old ham, you know, so, yeah. Oh, man. I mean, you just have these incredibly intense memories of those meals, and it seems so foundational to your cooking and and everything that you've done. Is that fair to say? It is. You know what? I was thinking about this the other
0: day. I went to culinary school at 30. I started cooking at 24. My grandmother, by the time I started cooking, she wasn't cooking as much anymore. So a lot of my food memories and a lot of the things when I talk about my grandmothers, both granny and grandma Thelma, when I'm talking about them, all of my memories, it wasn't from cooking next to them. So I have these memories that were almost preserved. Like These memories were laying dormant until it was time for me to use them. And so when I'm making something, I go back into this file of facts, like right? This file of the memories of having that dish. And that's what I call on even when I'm looking to make something. Like taste-wise, visually, that's what I go back to.
1: But you've had a pretty interesting relationship with soul food because you kind of left it for a while, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, you went to Europe and then you went to culinary school and you've talked about how you just kind of wanted to distance yourself from it, and then you seem to have come back to it in a big way.
0: Yes, I've come back with a vengeance. You know, it's. I think uh, <laughs> not, that that's bad when you talk about food. Um, I think, though, that we oftentimes, I, I, whatever discipline you're in, you take things for granted, and I took my cultural memories for granted. And it wasn't until um, well, there were there it was a there were a couple steps that were involved. One when I did Top Chef, and when I was stressed, I was doing comfort food. That's not the food that I was making for the most part when I was catering. But then when I finished Top Chef, people were connecting me with comfort food, and I was like, "Huh, interesting." Then I was approached about doing something with the African American Museum. And I was talking to Dr. Jessica B. Harris, who, yeah, high on the hog.
1: Uh, yeah, I want to talk about
0: that in a second, yeah, amazing. and I realized that there was so much that I had kicked to the curb, and I didn't want to be pigeonholed. I mean, I think a lot of black chefs think that way. they didn't want to be pigeonholed. We are you know we're we're different, whether you're from the West or the North, the South, you know, the Creole coast. And so we were kind of protecting our creativity in a way. I didn't want to do what people expected me to do. I, I'm a Taurus. I am, I'm a rebel. If you talk to Gretchen Rubin, I'm a rebel and I'm a Taurus. So I'm doubling down with stubbornness. And so <laughs> I didn't want to, I, didn't, I really didn't want to do the things that, that I thought would be expected of me, and I also didn't want to be pigeonholed. And so I was doing everything but that. And once I learned through this work that Jessica was doing, and I realized how much I should be proud of this food, and how much really, when I looked at it, was so much a part of who I am. When I was on Top Chef and stressed, this was the food that I was making. When I was modeling and I was in Europe and Sunday suppers, that sort of came back to me every turn when I look at how I found comfort. It was through food and it was through soul food. But I also wanted to not be pigeonholed. I didn't want to pigeonhole soul food. And, you know, that's why my book is called Soul Food Every Day in Celebration. Because when I think about what my grandmother was making, I mean, we didn't eat that food every day. That was on Sundays. But when we were there during the week, it would be, you know, um, a poached chicken. It would be really light foods and not a lot of fat. And my grandmother was also working at a hospital. So she was looking at food in a very, what I found, what I thought was a very different way than what was really fatty and celebration
1: food. We'll be right back with Carla Hall after the break. This episode of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken, a new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients, this slow-roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. Honey drizzled and barbecue sizzled. Ask for freshly sliced Sweet Bees Honey Barbecue Chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and we're talking with Carla Hall. So, Carla, I was watching the documentary High on the Hog, and there's a scene in there where Michael Twitty, who is a prominent food historian, says, we call our food soul food, we are the only people who named our cuisine after something invisible that you could feel, like love and God. Uh-huh. And I thought that was a pretty profound statement. I've never heard anybody put it quite that way. But I'm wondering if you've seen the series and and what that meant to you.
0: I have seen the series, and you know, I got a little teary when he said that. Even now, it sort of hits me in a very emotional way. And I'd never heard somebody put it quite that way. And when you think about our food, most times, and I'm not sure if even now it's even capitalized as a proper noun, but when people think of other cuisines and they're from a particular country, they're capitalized because they are from a particular country. Well, we don't have that country. And so I'm always saying whenever I do an article or you know I, I read through them like, this should be capitalized, because that is our food. But I do think that when you think about people of African descent, one of our things, and I mean, you hear Michael Twitty talk and Jessica Harris and so many other people, we have a relationship with people and each other that is about us, our relationship with individuals, and we're very social. And so soul food, the name that came out of, you know, late 60s when everything was you know, hair and black power. But it really was about the love of our culture. Yeah. So I think it's appropriately, um, that was an
1: appropriate description. Well, you've talked about the difference between Southern food and soul food being like the difference between a hymn and a spiritual, mm-hmm. which... <laughs> <laughs> now, what do you think a, about that? <laughs> I thought it was just wonderful, I, and I think to put it in the musical context makes all the sense in the world because it's a hard mm-hmm. thing to explain otherwise.
0: Right, right. I'm very visual, and I love metaphors, and and so when I'm talking to people, even when I'm judging on a clicking show, I generally give a metaphor of what I'm tasting in my mouth, so I can put somebody in that space. When I used to go to a Catholic church, they sing the the music the way that it is in the, in the hymn. And then I remember the first time that I went to a church where they had praise dancers and I was like, oh my gosh, I, I, I felt it in my heart. You know, I'm like, this is the same song. They just put a little something, something on it, which is amazing. And I think that's what soul food is. And that's what people of African descent do with their food. I'm not saying that other people can't do it, but I, I love that it is an expression, just like dance, just like music, that I think that is oftentimes imitated, but the credit isn't given to our community.
1: I want to talk about the holidays for a minute. Okay. So you have a new children's book coming out called Carla and the Christmas Cornbread. Yes. So, oh, you've got a copy of it. That's great. (laughs) Uh, It's hard to go wrong with a title like that. And so this sounds to me like it was based on a true story and a real recipe. So my question is, what's the story and why did you want to write it?
0: I am so excited about this book. I've wanted to do a children's book for the longest time. Um, And just going full circle, when I was in grade school, I thought I was going to be a cartoonist. And so I've always had these characters in my life. And there's a character in the book called Bubba. And I've been drawing Bubba since fifth grade. But the story is, it is based on my life. And it's based on when I'm going to my grandmother's house and, you know, wanting the cornbread to be ready for like Christmas weekend, the days around Christmas. And I end up eating one of these beautiful cookies that I see. And my sister's like, you're eating Santa's cookie. And I was just like, what? And I got so upset. My grandmother called me into the kitchen. I'm such a tenderoni because when I was little, you know, I'm a words of affirmation person. And so if you put any kind of loudness on a word i'm like oh my god i'm in trouble and i start crying so
1: <laughs> to this day
0: <laughs> to the, well okay no and i keep it in i i'll go cry in, in in the bathroom i won't cry in public <laughs> so my grandmother calls me into the kitchen and we make a a cornbread for santa in a little pan and we make some cinnamon butter to go on it and Then I leave it out for Santa and Santa leaves me a note. And then my grandfather says, you know, Santa gets tired of those little cookies anyway. He wants something different. And, you know, it's just such a sweet story. The illustrator, Sharice Harris, and the imprint is Deneen Milner books through Simon and Schuster. And I'm so incredibly excited about it. And I hope that no matter what culture you're from, you get it and you understand that special bond between a
1: child and their grandparents. Well, it's a great story and beautifully told, beautifully illustrated. You know, there's a moment in the book where you talk about a Santa Claus ornament Mm -hmm. that was hanging on the tree. Can you tell me about that? Yes. So I talk about my
0: favorite ornament and the Santa is black. And I remember growing up and my mother would look for black Santa. If Santa is a made-up character, why can't he be in my image? Why can't he be in... Whose ever image, you know, whatever child, whatever culture that child is from. And so this Black Santa is celebrated. And then in the back of the book, you will see, as Santa waves goodbye, it's Black Santa. Do you still have that ornament somewhere? I do. I do. I do. <laughs> I do. I have I have a Black Santa. I have a couple of Black Santa ornaments, yes. yeah, <laughs> That's great. Mm-hmm.
1: So, Carla, you've had this incredible journey in terms of your career? I mean, you went to business school at Howard University. You were a runway model in France and all over Europe for a while. I mean, when did you have this realization that food was going to be your path? Once I walked away from accounting,
0: my intention was to figure out what the next step was. And I was open to whatever that was. And and I I, I had no idea. And food, I just sort of stumbled upon it. When I came back from Europe, I was figuring out my next steps. I started a lunch delivery service as a fluke, just taking sandwiches to a friend at a doctor's office. And because we had had a conversation the day before, I get there and she's like, oh, you know, this is Carla's business. I'm like, wait, what? And so, you know, I ended up making it up on the spot. And because I love a challenge, I just kept doing it. And I did it every single day for five years. And that's kind of how I ended up in food. But the first three to four years, it was just survival because I needed a job and I just kept doing it and I kept getting better at it. And then I decided that I had the practical experience and I wanted to get the theory and I wanted to go to culinary school. So it was a happy accident that I ended up in food. But in hindsight, I think I was supposed to to do it. And even when I think, I was just thinking this a couple of days ago, back to the memories that were lying dormant until I activated them. And I, I think that it's really powerful. And the only thing that I can think of is that that was the case because this is what I'm supposed to be doing. You
1: have a podcast called Say Yes with Carla Hall, which is wonderful and is all about trying things and taking chances and overcoming adversity. It sounds like you want to share some of your success that you've had and encourage people to try things, no matter how old they are. What has this podcast been like for you? What have you taken away from it?
0: One I wanted to make sure that people find their happiness right and 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 you may not quit your job, but you may have an outlet alongside of your job, but also failure is part of success. I remember when I had the lunch delivery service, and I was doing a catering job, and I was waiting to be paid and I had so many bills due. I was in the shower crying. Because I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I gonna do if I don't get paid? I mean, and that happened all the time. And so I wanted people to see that even though some of these people that they see these celebrities and they put them on pedestals, they're human too. And they've been through a lot of different things. And if you can use those stories to be inspired, to find the thing that you want to do, to find the thing that makes your heart tick. The one thing that I know is, If I don't say yes to something, I'm going to be in the same position. And so I want to inspire people to just try something. It doesn't matter if you fall on your face. And I've done that too. I've hosted the James Beard Awards and I literally fell like Superman diving onto the floor. But you know (laughs) what? The podcast (laughs) helped me to embrace that realness. I don't even call it failure. When I was going to fall, I was like, okay, uh uh-oh, I'm about to fall. And I had all these thoughts. I tell you, I'm about to fall. How do I want to fall? Oh, engage the core, make it big. I had all of those thoughts in the middle of (laughs) getting ready to fall. As you were going down. (laughs) As I was going down. And I almost kicked a chef in the head because I was spiraling my legs. But if I'm doing something and it's live and and things don't go the way that that I hope that they would... I'm going to lean into it and I'm going to be real and in the moment. And I really think that has been part of my success because people see me as very real and I, I don't want to be anything,
1: but I don't want anybody to set me up on a pedestal that I can't live up to. Carla, I imagine that like a lot of people, you went for a really long time without having any big meals with friends and family now that a lot of people are vaccinated, has there been a big meal or celebration that kind of stands out for you? Yes. So I've also been filming.
0: We just filmed Halloween Baking Championship and we went out with a a bunch of people at a restaurant in Knoxville and I hadn't really been out with other people to a restaurant. It was like one of my first times. And so the guy comes, he says, have you all had a chance to look at the menu? I'm like, mm-hmm. He said, what do you want? I said, the whole left side of it. I want the whole (laughs) left side of the menu. (laughs) like Just the left side. I said, we'll come back on another day for the right side. But today, we're having the left side. And it was so great. And I I looked at everybody at the table. I said, I just want you to know we're about to overorder. And it was so fantastic. And I I just, I miss going out. I miss just sitting across from people and passing those plates and waiters and chatting. People are so excited to get out. And you feel that magical energy, especially at a
1: restaurant. It was fantastic. Yeah, I know. I'm eager to get back out there myself. Carla, I just have one more question. What does it mean to you to be Southern? Mm, my accent
0: that comes and goes. Um, you know, one of the things that I love, and I have lost my accent. So when I hear somebody's Southern accent, I'm like, oh, are you from the South? And I see, I see the, like, if they don't know who I am, they're, they're just like, why is she talking about my accent? Because it is a sense of friendliness and, we will talk to strangers and I absolutely talk to strangers. My husband who's from the Midwest, I'll go somewhere and I'll go to a store and I'm like, oh my God, I met somebody and they're from here and then they did this and then they you know they went to such and such schools. He was like, How long were you in the store? I'm like, well I was in line for at least ten minutes, you know, because we're <laughs> we're so used to talking to people. When I was living in my apartment in New York, in order to find a way to talk to people or to make up a reason. I pretended like I needed stuff. And so I would go to my neighbors and say, do you have any cream? Do you have any butter? And I would go to various floors. i mean, like, excuse me, I, I just moved in down on the third floor. Do you have any blah, blah, blah? And we ended up having like progressive dinners in our apartment building in New York City. I mean, people in New York are actually friendly, but no one reaches out. That is the Southerner in me. It is that sense of community and not meeting strangers and just caring about the folks in your community and actually telling them i mean you can care about them and not say anything
1: (laughs) well it is great to meet you carla hall and thank you so much for being on biscuits and jam
0: thank you so much and that name i love it
1: (laughs) (laughs) thanks for listening to my conversation with carla hall you can pre-order her upcoming book carla and the christmas cornbread now on amazon Tune in to Say Yes with Carla Hall, however you listen to podcasts, and you can order Carla's own cookies, pound cakes, and Nashville hot chicken from goldbelly.com. Join me next week for my interview with singer-songwriter Brittany Spencer.
0: There's just something about the simplicity of Southern culture that I've always loved. I say this all the time, but you can find a little country in every city, the same way you can find a little city in every country.
1: Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama, and this podcast was produced and edited in Nashville, Tennessee. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or telling your friends about the program. You can find us online at southernliving.com and subscribe to our print publication by searching for Southern Living at www.magazine.store. Biscuits and Jam is produced by Heather Morgan Schott, Chrissy Tiglius, and me, Sid Evans for Southern Living. Thanks also to Ann Kane, Jim Hankey, Danielle Roth, Matt Sav, Erica Wong, and Rachel King at Pod People. I look forward to you joining us next week on Biscuits and Jam.